Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, a thousand tiny steps, episode 13 episode five of season two, which is talking a lot about Molly, the circumstances around her death. My last podcast episode was death week. And I have to be honest, it took me a long time to recover from bringing all that up and talking about it. I get teary eyed now. It hasn't come out yet. By the time you hear this, it will have. So (laughs) it's a weird thing about recording a podcast is it's not time accurate sometimes, but I have to say that you know, you see all these memes on Facebook about choose happiness and be happy and you can only control yourself. And all of these things are true, but when I think back to when I think back to Death Week, coming back from Amsterdam, and Molly's asleep and never wakes up, and all that we go through, and all that we went through afterwards, I go right back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And there are times when you don't have the ability to choose anything. And this was another lesson I taught in health class. And it's a triangle. And at the top of the triangle is self-actualization, where you can really truly be your full complete self. But underneath are three other levels. So there's physical safety, you know, and health. So like having a place to live and, and having food and water. And then there's emotional, the emotional health, and that's feeling safe in your relationships and having people who love you and, and a community in which you fit. And then it's beauty, being able to recognize beauty, that having the opportunity to listen to Mozart or go to a play, or see a sunrise and like connect beauty into your life. And then finally at the top is self-actualization where you can be relatively complete. And, you know, it's clear to me as I navigate grief groups that self-actualization is a tricky, is a tricky task. And I, when I think back to the week to death week, which I talked about before, I was in the bottom of a river tied to a brick. And that's the analogy I would use in my health class. Sometimes, you know, raise your hand if you want, already thinking about your prom dress and these would be, you know, juniors in high school or freshmen even, and all the girls would raise their hand. I said, all right, so now you're tied up and you're put into a plastic bag and chucked into a river. Are you worried about your prom dress now? Well, of course not. You're worried about getting out of the river and breathing and being alive. And then when you get, you finally get rescued and you're on the side of the river, you don't care what you look like. You're just so happy to breathe. You're soaking wet. Maybe you have scars or you know bruises or whatever. It's not until you've regained all that physical safety, eating and breathing and being cared for that you can then think, oh my God, that scared me to death. And you go to a therapist and deal with the fact that somebody chucked you into a river once you have some stability, then you can sort of see the ha- see the beauty in things again. And then finally, you have fulfillment. You have moments where you can be just okay. If there was ever a scenario that this hierarchy of needs fit perfectly, it's losing a child. And I think Gracie would agree, you know, Molly was her sibling, but child loss in a family decimates you. It takes you from wherever you were and puts you at the bottom of a river tied to a brick. Nothing much you can do in the beginning, except scramble for the basic being okay. I talk a lot with people who lose their children and both in my online groups and here in Concord. And a friend of mine from high school recently lost her son and she's just, you know, a few weeks into it. And I always reach out right away. And I, and I tell these moms and dads, you you take your time. If you don't ever reach out, I won't be hurt. It's your journey. You have to do it the way you do it. That was always the best advice to me. But I've been conversing a little bit with this mom about not being able to sleep and, and the different things that we do to, to cope with that in the middle of the night. I used to drive around in my car. Some people watch TV, others listen to music or podcasts. We all have things that we do. And that's probably one of the worst times is night. And it was for me. As I said, Gracie and I camped out on the, on the living room floor. We got home from the hospital and that's where we camped. So all of these things play into what I will call the month of May or the next 11 days. So we brought Molly home May 7th, but we came home without Molly May 7th. May 8th, Molly was at the funeral home. And from that day until May 23rd, 15 days, two weeks, two weeks, we had to plan family burial, obtain, you know, a casket, a gravestone, which I wanted right away. 
a place to bury her, and then a memorial service fit for Molly. And so this podcast episode will talk about those two weeks. In general, all the busyness and hubbub around a death and planning a funeral is incredibly helpful for parents. You're busy. You don't really have time to think. And people are coming by all the time. So just, just when you're alone and thinking you're starting to get squirrely, somebody comes by with a big pan of mac and cheese <laughs> or some croissants. Gracie and I often talk about the fact that we ate no fruits and vegetables in the summer of 2016. Everything we ate was either pasta or bread. We didn't even think about these things. You just ate what was around. So May 7th is where I left off last time, coming home from Hanover without Molly and how horrifying that was because now she was gone. I'd been looking at her body for six days, knowing it would never wake up. However, I could look at her body. I could touch her toes. I could look at her shoulder dimples. I could smell her neck. So much of what we know as humans about somebody else's presence in our life is their body. It's what we see. It's what we experience. We live in a physical world. The thought of coming home without her was horrifying. And so Glenn, the funeral director, was terrific at letting us come see Molly. He, he set her up at the funeral home every single day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And then we buried her on Wednesday, the 11th. But I will say this, the change in what Molly looked like was profound. She did not look like a dead person lying in that bed on life support. She smelled like Molly. Her cheeks were rosy. It's because her body was being kept alive. When we first saw her laid out in the funeral home, I remember bringing Gracie and it was Sunday afternoon and Gracie was like, oh, and she went right up and touched her and she just shied away. Like her hand, it was like she had touched, you know, I don't know, something. She recoiled immediately and sat down and got on her phone. And that's the last time that Gracie went. She didn't want to see Molly that way. I take that back. She actually came and we made her up and made her look pretty and took a lot of pictures when she was all dressed and ready to be buried. She did come then because she wanted to put things in there, but I'm jumping ahead, which I do sometimes. Saturday, we get home and the yard is full of people. And I'm both happy and panicked about this, but it's people that I love. It's Robin Grant and her two daughters. It's a little A and her mother, people that I don't know super well, just local citizens that were dropping off flowers. And our yard is full of flowers, annuals, perennials, just full. And Robin and Maddie Grant ended up planting the garden for us where we used to have a vegetable garden. At any rate, it was a cloudy day. We come home, we unload everything into the room I'm sitting in now. I'll talk about this room in a minute. And we just unload everything here. And I will say everything we put in this room stayed where we put it for about two years. It was the hospital room. I just couldn't even fathom looking at any of it. It was too, too tender and too much. We would pull things from it for the lawsuit as that went along. But in general, this room was unused. We would kick our way to the closet if we needed something out of the closet, but we just, we just didn't use it. We started sort of putting away food and processing food. People were bringing food over. I received a phone call from the organ bank. As I had mentioned before, because Molly, we didn't know if Molly had cancer, we couldn't donate any of her healthy, healthy, perfectly beautiful organs. And she did really well on life support. She didn't need to be on oxygen. A lot of people who are on life support are on oxygen because their bodies don't process it well. And she was, she was fine on room air the whole time she was on life support, which was an indication of how healthy she was. We were just sort of unraveling and, and things. And, and by now it was about dinner time. And I received a phone call from the organ bank. And this was Saturday. So Molly was still in, in Dartmouth. She was in the morgue up there. And they wanted to go get her. The, the woman on the phone said, I'm going to send someone up to get her. And they were going to bring her to Waltham, Massachusetts, to take her cornea and then bring her back. And I lost it. I, I just started sobbing. That sort of uncontrollable, <laughs> I have no choice how I'm reacting here. Here are the sobs. I couldn't imagine sweet little 13-year-old Molly, you know, and I say this a lot, naked in a Johnny. You know, she was in a hospital. She, her little body was so vulnerable. And I know that she wasn't in it anymore. But I grew that body. I grew that body in my belly. How I felt at the time was, no, she's not going to be in the back. What if the car got in an accident and her body went in the river? You know, now that I'm five and a half years not having seen her body, that piece of it is easier for me. But at the time, I, I just, that was the only proof she existed at, the, at that moment was her body. And so I told the woman, I'm so sorry, I can't do it. And, and we hung up and I went down and told Kenny the whole story. And then she called me back. And she said, you know, I have a 13-year-old daughter and I wouldn't let her go anywhere either. We're going to send a crew up to Hanover. I've called the hospital. They'll provide a place for us to take care of it up there. Another way that Dartmouth was just phenomenal to us in and around Molly. So they went there. <laughs> and that piece was taken care of in the safety of Dartmouth Hitchcock. 
then that was fine. So in looking at Molly, when she came back to, you know, when she came back to Concord and she was at the funeral home, she looked very different. Her body was cold and hard. There was no gift to her skin anymore. So Molly was at the funeral home and we were, well, she was on her way there. And Sunday morning was Mother's Day, May 8th, 2016. My first Mother's Day without Molly was the day after we unplugged her. These holidays are tricky. And 2016 was a holidayless year for us from that point on because holidays were Molly's. So I remember waking up. So Gracie and I were on the living room floor. And I remember when it came time to go to bed, Gracie just, we just went up and got blankets and we plopped them on the living room floor and we spread them out and went to bed. Kenny went up. Kenny was, as I said, you know, still in renal failure, still going to dialysis all the time. And Molly's death really smacked his health quite severely. So we went up. Now, I hadn't had any alcohol for a week because I'd been at the hospital. And, you know, when you're in that setting and, and everything, you know, I didn't think about it. But I had drinks that night and a lot of drinks, a lot of nights after that. So Gracie and I go to sleep. I don't even remember my conversations with Roy at that time. I know that we spoke every day and I'm sure that it was horrifying. I was just so, so blindsided, like a deer in the headlights, even though I'd had a whole week to process this, I was utterly dumbfounded that Molly was dead. Like I couldn't wrap my head around believing it. And I was at the bottom of the river tied to a brick. I couldn't, I couldn't function. And then of course, Kenny and Gracie were the same way. And so their reaction about, you know, back from Amsterdam, Kenny and I were living separately at that time, all of that. And at that moment, we knew at least for the time being that three of us had to stay together. Gracie needed both of her parents. She'd lost her sister. I've lost my daughter. My biggest concern was losing my other daughter. And so I felt like what I had to do for Gracie was just be a unified front. And that made perfect sense at the time anyway, because we had funeral arrangements to make. So Mother's Day, I wake up. And my first thing I remember about it is, so when I woke up, I had to get right out of bed. I didn't lie in bed back then. If I woke up, I jumped up like immediately. And Gracie would sometimes say, why do you jump up so fast? And I'm like, I can't lie here in this bed. And we would set our coffee maker so it would go off. And I would go pour a cup of coffee and go sit on the porch, the screen porch outside. It was Molly's favorite place. And I couldn't function. And I would sit there and, and just drink coffee and think about the day. And I would scroll on my phone, endless hours on Facebook, just reading posts, answering posts, checking posts. I, I, it was the way that I communicated. And it was a time that I was very grateful for social media. So Mother's Day, what I remember the most in the quiet of the morning, I live about, as the crow flies, a half a mile from Route 93. So you can hear the cars on the highway. And I could hear the cars. And all I could think of was all those people are going to Mother's Day brunches and their happy little Mother's Day celebrations because they didn't lose their child. And I'm sitting here not even wanting to think about Mother's Day. And that was one of the first realizations that life goes on. It <laughs> doesn't matter. I'm not a part of it. Life goes on. So began our planning. And a big piece of our planning was Cindy Flanagan and the Owens Concord Dance Academy, as I've said before. It was with her and Celeste, a woman that works at CDA. Her daughter, Molly, danced at CDA forever. One of the nights at the hospital, I believe it was Thursday night, Cindy came up twice to see Molly and she just didn't want to believe that she didn't want to wake up. And the first time she came was prior to the news that it was definite. And the second time we had been told that was it. And so she felt she had to come back and the whole CDA, you know, most of the staff came up to say their goodbyes. Cindy, I remember was holding Molly's hand and Molly's hand squeezed her hand and she went white. Like she squeezed my hand, she squeezed my hand. And of course, from the neck down, Molly's reflexes were fine. It's brainstem stuff. So she would have these little, every once in a while, she would have a reflex, but it wasn't in response to anything because there was no connection to her brain, to her body. So it was just one of those, you know, myoclosis type things where the body just does its thing. I never, I never felt it, which is heart-wrenching. I would have loved to have Molly squeeze my hand. But it just created a, created a conversation. And, you know, Miss Cindy isn't one that emotes necessarily. And the decimating sobs, she didn't share them. They just came out in the hallway of Dartmouth-Hitchcock were heart-wrenching. Gracie and I were dumbfounded because we never saw Cindy. Cindy is stoic and solid, and that's how she is. You raise seven boys, you become stoic and solid. So as the night went along, you know, we started talking about what to do for a funeral. And there's a little online blurb from the Concord Monitor right before Molly's memorial service where the reporter is asking us, how did this come about? And we were standing at Molly's bed. Cindy and Celeste were in the room next door, the room that the hospital emptied out. And I said, you know, Kenny, we have to think about this. What do we do? And we decided that we would have, you know, we went through, do we do it in a church? No, in a park, what if it rains? You know, we had all these options. And finally I said, we need to do it in a theater. Molly's life was in a theater. Plays are in theaters. 
dance competitions are in theaters. That's where her memorial service should be. And when we walked into the anteroom there to talk to Celeste and Cindy about it, hey, we have an idea. We think Molly's funeral should be. And Cindy said, a show. <laughs> and thus Molly B. the Musical was born. So when we were, arrived home to Concord, Cindy gave us a call and she and her, and her husband, Carl, were devastated. They couldn't stop crying. You know, they couldn't talk about it without crying. It was really, it was really, really a horrifying thing. Molly's death just caught everyone off guard and took everyone by surprise. She called on Sunday, you know, happy Mother's Day, and shared that this cardinal was like noisy, noisy, noisy outside her window. And she's, she's not ever had a cardinal there before. And it comes around still, but that whole week, it was just on her. So she said, look, get your family stuff done. Once your family funeral is over, then we'll put together Molly B. the Musical. From Sunday, May 8th until Wednesday, May 11th, we took care of putting together Molly's funeral. So I was insistent that not none of her friends see a casket go in the ground. That's not how I wanted them to remember Molly. I wanted them to remember Molly alive. And they had already had their goodbyes in terms of saying goodbye. So the graveside service was family only. Monday, May 9th, was an entire day of what you do when you plan a funeral. Ordering a casket. Molly's casket is pink. What will she wear? She wore, she's wearing that beautiful pink dress that she bought on her shopping spree when I was in Amsterdam. What will go in the, in the casket with her? Well, a stuffed animal Kicha made and a script from Bye Bye Birdie and a golf ball from Kenny, a couple of necklaces from me, some makeup because she was, was getting, so getting into makeup. You know, just a little, uh, half of a sister necklace, half of a mother-daughter necklace. You know, all of these things went into the, you know, all these things get thought about and go into the casket we went to the cemetery and chose a plot and the plot I chose ended up being like right next to my good friend, Bridget Ferns is bad. It's this beautiful Celtic cross. And, and it was just right there on the hill. And if you stood there, you could see the duck pond and I liked it. And when we actually ended up having to have it in a bit of a different place, because there's a big granite ledge right there. We went all around Blossom Hill Cemetery and Jill was just wonderful with us, all the cemetery staff. And we chose a spot. So now we have a spot. You know, I'm a firm believer in using people that, you know, you know, if, if, if you do business with people that you know, you know, sometimes I, I just felt safer. And so I, I chose a company called Star Granite and Ricky DeVoid, the owner of that business, I knew as a little kid, my first year teaching at Walker School, he was a sixth grader and his mother, Belinda, is just a big part of my childhood. I actually think I've spoken about them on this podcast before. It seems familiar. And one of my students at the private school I was teaching at at 33 is their daughter. The family connection was huge, just huge. We went to all those places. We went to the cemetery. We went to Star Granite. I called and made an appointment. There was this beautiful pink headstone right there on the lot. And I said, I love that. And so instead of ordering us one, because sometimes the cut of granite can be a bit different in color, he gave us that one. What do we put on, on the gravestone? We decided that we would put Molly Bands off. Molly's name is Mary Elizabeth. She's named after her grandmother, Kenny's mother. But no one ever calls her that. One of the biggest things that we were thinking about was what to put on the gravestone. So as I said, Molly's name is Mary Elizabeth, named after her great-grandmother, but nobody called her Mary Elizabeth. Everyone called her Molly. So we just thought Molly Banzoff. That's, that's how people know her. That's who she was to everybody. And she sometimes got irritated when teachers took attendance and they'd say Mary. Next was, what do we put on there? So we put her birth date and her death date, you know, just very basic. And it's all on the front. And we thought it would, should be decorated. You can create things, but I didn't have time to generate artwork. So Ricky was terrific. He showed us a bunch of options and there was this beautiful ballet slippers with some trim around it that frame her name and her birth date and death date. So we chose that. Dance is dance and ballet is the center of every style of dance there is. So ballet slippers seemed right. And then, as I mentioned before, she had this saying, the one that is not behind me right now, but is behind me in my normal podcast location. Do you think you have a purpose? If so, what? I think mine is to make people happy. Does that make you happy? Yes. Purpose fulfilled. So that's on the front of her stone as well. And the back is empty. And we just wanted it done as quickly as possible. So Monday was spent doing all of those things. And I will tell you that, again, functioning beneath the water of a raging river tied to a brick is an impossibility. But you click into gear and you go along. We left Gracie home. It was my mother, Kenny, me, and Katie, Kenny's daughter, Katie. She inserted herself into a lot of these activities. You know, she and I were not speaking at the time. She was very, very angry with me for going away on vacation, but this was my daughter's death and our family's situation. And she was able for a few days to put those things aside so that we could, we could formulate what we need, get done, what we needed to get done. And I think she wanted to make sure that Kenny's voice was heard as well. I would never leave his voice out. She had decided that her task was to protect her dad. So 
she was a part of it. And I remember at the, you know, we were choosing burial plots and I wanted to buy more than one so that there would be places for Kenny and myself and, and Gracie and, or whomever my, you know, my parents, his parents, family members, whomever, his son, Kenny, all of these things. We just went through anyone that might need it. We want there to be enough room that nobody would be without a place to be buried should they die unexpectedly or something like that. And she got very nervous that, that someday, you know, if I, if I chose to leave Kenny and go be with Roy forever, that, you know, he would be buried next to her sister. And this was offensive to her. Well, she gets to be offended by it. But I remember at the time just being a bit thunderstruck, like, what the heck? Right now we're talking about where do we bury Molly and let's buy some extra plots. What does that have to do with anything? I mean, I'm not quite sure why she brought that up, but I, you know, when I look back on it, none of that piece of it makes sense to me. And I share it because I think that if I'm going to share the story, I'll share all of the story. And, you know, she, she, you know, sided with her father, as I guess family members should do. If you're going to pick a side, she would side with him. And that was fine. But it, I remember that moment in the office where she brings it up. And, and I just think to myself, in 30, 40, 50 years, when I'm buried with somebody, you'll have your own kids in your own cemetery plots. Like, it won't matter. But at the time, it mattered to her. It really, really, to this day, it still irks me. But at any rate, all of that happened. And we chose the gravestone and we planned the time Wednesday, the 11th in the morning, and it would be a graveside service. And what do we need? And all of those things, people had raised thousands of dollars for us. Funerals are not cheap. I feel very, very badly for people that don't have money. When I taught for the district, I had a life insurance policy that would have paid for it. I no longer had any of those things. Had we not had the support we had, thank you, Molly Ryder, who raised, did an online fundraiser that raised more than $30,000 for us. She was one of my runners years ago. And then there were online auctions, the Molly B t-shirt sales, all of these things raised a ton of money for us that allowed us to honor her and bury her without financial worry. We put, put all of that together. So by Monday, that was done, all of those logistics. One of Molly's friends, a little girl named Taylor, her mother and father, Taylor Green, her mom and dad stepped up and asked, what are we going to do to feed our family on Molly's burial day? And I said, I don't know. I, I guess I'll you know, order food from a restaurant. And her dad, Mr. Green, worked at then at the Olive Garden, and he donated food for our family after the funeral. This is where you find joy and tragedy when people really show who they are. I've never met this man on any big basis. Molly had just been developing this wonderful friendship with Taylor. They were they were relatively new friends, met in middle school, and they just clicked. And they and they balanced each other out, and they had fun, and they had some common friends that weren't run with people. And, and it was just wonderful. One of Molly's favorite birthday escapades was with Taylor staying overnight in a hotel. The videos of that are hilarious. So Wednesday morning comes and everything is ready. So we get a call to go to the cemetery and the place that we had chosen for Molly, we find out we can't use, you can't dig down deep enough. And so they've put her right near the road, right behind another row of stones. And that isn't what I would have chosen, but I think they just tried to you know, that they knew we wanted more than one plot. And I think they looked at what was already purchased and we, where we would be able to spread out on both sides of her and chose a spot. Now it's fine because it's right there by the road. You can, you can sit in your car and look at her grave and see everything. At the time, I, I couldn't worry about it. So they were setting up, you know, digging the grave, you know, the tent and the seats and the fake grass and over the pile of dirt, all the things that go into a grave. I'd ask all my family members to wear pink <laughs> and I have some pretty macho bicycle riding relatives that had pink trim or a pink bandana. It was cute. And so the family started to arrive and much to my surprise and joy, my cousin James from North Carolina came and my uncle Walty and auntie Julie, cousin Christopher came from Wisconsin. I have all these pictures of me curling Gracie's hair and, and getting all ready and everyone wearing their pink. And I went and bought this pink dress with white polka dots. And we had spent Tuesday putting the program together. And my sister-in-law, Kathy was super helpful with that. So we had high readings, we had Christian prayers, we had Kathy sang, and then we spoke. I spoke, Gracie spoke, my mother spoke. We, I invited anyone that wanted to stand up and just talk about Molly to speak. Kenny's family is far and wide, and so we were having a family service, and then we we're having Molly be the musical. We hadn't even set the date yet, but that was coming. So his family, the majority of his family came to that. So here at our, at our graveside service, it was really his children, his good friend Gary, and his wife Carol. And that really represented Kenny's family. And the rest of it was my family. Katie's husband, Tony, was kind enough to video record the ceremony. And my good friend, Aaron Howard, who has, does wonderful pictures, photographed. I haven't, and I've not looked at any, any of that still. Five and a half years later, I've not looked at the pictures other than the ones that she shared. And I have not looked at the video. Again, the things that we 
work into doing. It was a beautiful sunny day. I don't remember any rain from the day we brought her home until after Molly B. the Musical. So we had the graveside service and I asked my neighbor, Lisa, up the street, I said, would you just do me a favor and hang out at my house? Because when the food gets delivered, I just need a place for it. Well, Lisa's a waitress, but she was working as a waitress at the time. And she took it upon herself. This is what I mean when people do things that you don't expect and it's so kind. She put on a white shirt, black pants and apron, and she catered that whole thing. She set the food up. She served. When we, when we came home, our kitchen was a restaurant and Lisa stayed the whole day. She washed dishes. She facilitated throwing garbage bags full of paper plates and plastic forks away. She was amazing. And my family, my sister Martha came and I believe my brother PJ came as well. At that time, they came to the family one and everyone sat outside and ate food and talked about Molly and reminisced. And my cousin, Jesse, you know, we, when do you see families? You see them at weddings and funerals. I remember we had done a cousin day when we found out that little Caleb had a very, very serious brain tumor and they wanted to travel with him when he was well enough to travel. Instantly, my family's together. You know, my, my family is many things, but when it comes to getting together at the last minute for something, we're on it. So it was beautiful. And as one by one, as people start to leave, it's time to go home. We had all this food left over. And so I just walked up the street I live, you know, if any of you are familiar with where I live, I live in the little neighborhoods. Sometimes it reminds me of the Brady Bunch and Molly and Gracie just played freely up in those streets growing up with all the neighborhood kids. So I just walked up the street. It was a beautiful sunny day. People were out and about and I invited the neighborhood to come. We have a ton of food. Please come and hang out. And so the morning funeral, the afternoon family gathering turned into an evening neighborhood gathering reminiscent of so many neighborhood campfires that we had had. We had had some division in our neighborhood. And so there was a family that we hadn't spoken to in years. And, you know, when a child dies, all of that just flies out the window. So we really had everyone together and it was phenomenal. And I think we invited also a handful of friends of Molly's that were close enough and knew some of these neighborhood friends that would make sense to invite. And we had this amazing night. It was phenomenal, beautiful weather. You know, we had a fire. We finished up all that food and cake. And it was a chance for the neighborhood to have a piece of their celebration too, as Molly's family. No big surprise. That night, Cindy Flanagan calls me and said, we'll, we'll meet you tomorrow at 10. So I didn't have to put together much for Molly's graveside service. We had to come up with a program and find some prayers and, and things like that. That wasn't all that difficult, logistically difficult. Kenny, Gracie, and I go to Cindy's house Thursday, May, May 12th. And we have a handful of dates from which to choose. God bless Cindy. She, you know, she owns Concord Dance Academy in May is recital month. There are rehearsals. There are other dance shows that dance schools that have their recitals. And Cindy books several dates in that theater through Concord Dance Academy. I was very concerned with how I would pay for this funeral, but I knew it had to happen. We had collected a lot of money and if I spent every penny on it, so be it. You know, brides spend a lot of money on their wedding day. God bless them. This was how it was going to be for Molly. She was never going to get a wedding day or a graduation or her license or turn 21. None of those things. We looked at a handful of dates and that were in and around the dates that Cindy was busy and that the theater was being used. So we chose a Monday night. And my thoughts were Monday nights were likely the least scheduled of weeknights because it's just after the weekend, you're back at work. And we chose 6.30. That was late enough for people to go home and eat dinner, but early enough that on a school night, it would be over in time to get home and get to bed for getting up the next day for work or school. So Monday, May 23rd, 2016 was slated for Molly B. the Musical. Let's see, the 12th to the 23rd. The next 11 days were some of the most difficult of my life. And where I really started relying heavily on a lot of the prescription medicine I was taking and a lot of alcohol, alcohol consumption and starting to dive into a really dark part of my recovery, which I will talk to at length in a different season. But I needed a lot of chemical support to get through these next days. It was horrifying. I would shake you, I was jittery. I didn't want to believe this was true, but I had to focus. I couldn't even wrap my head around working out at the time either. I didn't step into a CrossFit gym for a long time, not until Memorial Day, I think. Every day I'd wake up and I had to find pictures. We had to figure out who was going to perform. Cindy initially had this idea that we would have, should have professional performers come and sing. And I was completely against that. I wanted Molly's friends to do the performing. And I can see why she might be reluctant because now we're basically putting on a middle school age talent show, but I didn't care. I wanted Molly's friends to have the chance to say goodbye. And this goes back to my friend Mora and me feeling so disjointed from being able to say goodbye to her. I wanted the entire show to be things that Molly did or things that her friends did to honor her. And so began the quest of putting together a show. So many things came into play. Do we balance it out? Do we make it uplifting? Do we make it sad? Who speaks? Do we have speakers? 
So essentially what we did, we created a series of numbers. Some of them were songs, people singing. Others were scenes from a play. A lot of them were tap dances and ballet dances and lyrical dances from Molly's dance friends and teachers. There was a video that her classmates made at school that was shown that that's how they all came and participated. Robin put together 13 beautiful things and it was 13 people that she got together to each speak a bit about Molly. That was a big surprise because I, you know, that was a beautiful part of the ceremony. Rachel Revelis and, and Michaela sang solos. Meg Nine and her brother played the violin. Alyssa played the piano. Taylor played the cello with, with some other kids from Remlet and a teacher. Everyone had a piece of what was important to them. And introducing each act was an adult in Molly's life that was significant, that could introduce the next act connected. So I had theater teacher Clint Close. I had Karen Braz. I had Little A, their first babysitter. I had Miss Ostrowski, one of Molly's teachers at Runlet that loved Molly. She was a huge support. I had all these people, just all of the adults. Mr. Barassa, her fifth grade teacher, he was terrific. Everyone had something kind to say about Molly. Everybody, everybody just was devastated by this death. And we put together a show. Kenny's idea all along was to open the number with this musical theater number called It's a Musical. And Molly, it was the musical theater number for 2015-16 at Concord Dance Academy on the comp team. And Molly was in it. it. You know, it started out with two gentlemen played by Derek Taylor and Jagger Reed. And they're, you know, a musical. What the hell is a musical? And the whole conversation, the whole song, the whole dance number is all about what a musical is versus a regular play. And the reasons why it's good and bad. And one character thinks a musical is a bad idea. And one thinks it's a great idea. And by the end of it, everyone is singing and dancing. And it was it ended up being the perfect opening for the show. I was reluctant at first because I thought it was too uplifting and too celebratory. And then as we went along, I realized, oh my gosh, as we put the, as we put the musical number together, that program, I realized the best way to open this was to say nothing, to dim the lights, open the curtains. And the first words anyone heard other than welcome to Molly be the musical was musical. What the hell is a musical? And then the show began. That dance number was phenomenal. Cindy Flanagan's comp teams are top notch. We win all the time. She's known for her tap and she's known a lot for her musical theater. So began Molly Be the Musical. Putting it together just about decimated me. I had to find pictures. I, so now I'm looking at pictures and I remember sitting at the kitchen table and on the computer and putting thumb drives of pictures together and finding little, because we wanted to close it with the slideshow and I, I wanted to make sure that everything was represented in the slideshow. I would have done it much longer than it was, but John Graffair, God bless him, spent a sunny weekend in May putting this together for someone he hardly knew, and it ended up being just right. So, but it, but it was horrifying to do this. And then we have to put together a program and get the program printed. But again, through this whole process, so we didn't really fully decide to put Molly Be the Musical, to have it open with that musical number until I think Thursday before the show, the show was on a Monday. And I went to CDA and Sarah Nyan was in the office and I said, we'd like to open the show with It's a Musical. And she said, okay. And she picked up the phone and she called everyone and everyone came. Now we have the weekend and we're finalizing things. I go, I go to a local print shop and they give me 1500 programs for free because the woman's daughter worked there, went to CDA and we had this connection. Oh my God, you're Molly's mother. Oh my God, my daughter talks about this all. Again and again and again, people just came, came out. The Green family got two or three other Olive Garden restaurants together and fed the 1,300 people that came to Molly's show. The food was flowing. The one thing I was going to have to pay for were some of the union workers and things like this. That's all I had to pay for. From what I understand, some of those workers ended up donating their time. None of the staff at the Capitol Center for the Arts would be paid. I got all these people to help serve food thinking I had to do this because I wasn't hiring anybody and that Capital Center for the Arts staff, volunteer staff, and paid staff all came in and just took care of it. It was phenomenal. Unbelievably phenomenal. That's a beautiful theater. It's not cheap. And these things were just gifted to us in the most wonderful way. We were covered under Concord Dance Academy. So it was one more Concord Dance Academy event. Insurance coverage for those things is expensive. But these were the things that were done for us at the time of Molly's death. It was the most beautiful thing. So my sister Eleanor flew up, desperately wanted to come and be a part of it. And so she flew up early and spent a few days with us before the musical and flew home the day after. Kenny's family started to arrive. So his, so his brother Gordy came and their kids and Kimmy and, you know, I can't remember. This is really terrible. <laughs> I should be, be better prepared these things. But a lot of his nieces and nephews came. It was wonderful to see them. Katie hosted a cookout. Another ugly little piece of reality is that she didn't want me to come. She was angry at me 
And so I was home alone. Penny had gone and Eleanor was with me. And then Gracie came home. You know, I was just very honest. Katie doesn't want me to come. She doesn't think I should be there. And so Gracie and Eleanor said, well, we're not going to go to a cookout without you. That's horrible. We do that. And so I called Kenny and said, look, we're not coming. And we only had one car. For whatever reason, the car was an issue. Either the Jeep wasn't working or whatever, but Kenny was there without a vehicle. I was allegedly supposed to drop Gracie off. And Gracie was unwilling to leave me. You know, I'm not going to go if you can't go. So Katie reluctantly let us all come and we went. So it was unbelievably uncomfortable. Just uncomfortable. I just wanted to see Kenny's family and be comfortable around them. And we all have our marital issues and our problems. But when, when someone dies, you just come together. That will never, ever, ever leave my mind either. Those were two really difficult aspects for me around Molly's death and the circumstances. So we had dinner. It was good for Kenny to see his family. Eleanor took a bunch of pictures and, and sort of ran around and had fun. But she, she and Gracie really hung pretty close to me. We didn't stay all that long. We had dinner and, and all of that. But it was it was right. It was either Saturday night or Sunday night, but I had a lot to do around getting the show ready anyway. Monday comes. Eleanor and I and Gracie go get our hair done. <laughs> I went to Sybil. Sybil did hair, my hair for my wedding. And so she agreed to do my hair for Molly Be the Musical. I wanted it to look nice. And I think it needed to be colored and all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so we had our hair done. It was a beautiful sunny day. And God bless Steve Martin at the Capitol Center for the Arts there and Molly up in lights on the, on the marquee. Molly Be the Musical, 6.30 p.m. People were calling the theater and asking, and we had been interviewed by the newspaper. And I said, anyone who wants to come, come, please wear pink. Please wear something pink. These beautiful Molly B shirts hadn't arrived yet. I think sometimes had they arrived already, what a great audience that would have been, all these t-shirts with Molly on it. But the amount of pink that ended up arriving that night was amazing. So on goes the day and we have to arrive at the theater. Cindy has us all arrive at four o'clock to do like a run through. No rehearsals at all. Everyone rehearsed what they were going to do on their own time. We had one sort of run through and all that was, was to get a sense of who went, who went at what time. I could not contain my sobs during the run through. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed the whole time. I couldn't stop. I was a mess. And I thought to myself, oh my, what a mistake this was. And then I looked at this big giant theater and all I could think of was what if nobody comes? Like, what if I've done this and 500 people come? Now, don't get me wrong. 500 people is a lot of people, but this is a, you know, a 1300 seat theater. And, and I was in a panic. We have our run through. Everything looks fine. Everything is fine. The order is all fine. And Cindy finally comes up and says, look, they're arriving. The line, and when I looked at pictures afterwards, I missed all of this. And I wish I could have seen it with my own eyes. But the line of people walking into that theater was, was huge. It was all the way down Main Street. There were all these Facebook little messages on people's pages that I didn't know very well. Like, what's going on at the Capitol Center? The line is ridiculous. And so it went both ways. It went south down South Main Street, north up North Main Street, coming into the theater to pay respects to Molly. A lot of the doctors from Concord were there and a handful of, of the staff from Dartmouth-Hitchcock came as well. I need not have worried. There wasn't an empty seat in that place. It was packed. The balcony was full. The downstairs was full. We had a section in the front for family and all of my family came and actually an unbelievably beautiful show of support for Kenny. His ex-wife, Karen, and her entire family came. Karen and her husband came. Kenny's former brother-in-laws and Karen's sisters all came. Kara's Kenny's former mother-in-law came. It really was wonderful. The family section was just full. There were bands offs there. There were Ferretta family there. It was beautiful and, and all of my family. So that was sort of saved up front so that we would have a place to sit. Gracie was backstage. She was in, a, in several numbers. So she experienced this as a performer, which I think in a lot of ways was best for her. And so began Molly Be the Musical. It was more than I ever could have imagined. And I think sometimes that's how you know it was meant to be and that we were just sort of facilitators of a plan that was already put in motion. Um, and all we could do is screw it up. So there was a lot of media coverage around Molly B the musical and I actually have it recorded. It's on a DVD and I need to figure out how to get it onto a computer so I could post it either on my website or on the Molly B foundation website. It was roughly two hours of the most amazing performances ever. And I look at these children now who are young adults, you know, the youngest people that were in Molly's show are high school students now you know, juniors and seniors, really. Everyone else has gone to college. It was phenomenal. We opened just the way with Carl's booming voice announcing Molly Be the Musical. And then so began the show. I, I learned afterwards that a lot of people were reluctant. Like, oh my gosh, all these kids that perform, like, what are we looking at? You know, and it, when you don't understand the performing world and who was putting the show together, then you would think, oh, this is going to be a disaster. And I remember that the fallout after was people were blown away. 
I have a couple of friends who are in the music industry and they were just blown away by the lighting and the sound and all of it. I have another friend that produces shows and he was amazed at how quickly and efficiently each number went on and off the stage. Well, that's because Carl and Cindy were backstage. After the opening number, we opened with that. Kenny Gracie and I went up on stage and we spoke. And I'm not a speech writer, so I, I just spoke from the heart. Roy was there. And this was a, this was a time where I, I knew that my life was inexplicably changing and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I looked up at him and I was giving this talk, thanking everyone for coming, knowing that everything I thought was real in my life was about to explode into nothingness. I think that's how I felt at that time. But it was just a night to celebrate Molly and everyone looked beautiful. People came that I didn't even know. People came to support me and Kenny. People came to support Molly. Concord has a street fair every summer called Market Days. And there was a woman selling these flowered umbrellas. And I still have it. We still have it on the bookshelf in the kitchen on the hutch. It was this beautiful flowered umbrella. And she'd already sold it to someone else. And Molly just loved it. And she kept coming back and trying to choose another. And this woman was so taken with Molly. Molly was nine at the time, maybe 10. Like she was young. She called the person that had saved it and said, look, this little girl really wants it. And so Molly got the umbrella. That woman came. And in the memory book, she wrote that memory. That was five years prior. That was, I guess, the effect that I didn't know that Molly had on people. And so singing, dancing, acting out scenes, solos, trios, songs, speeches, a video from her school and a slideshow at the end. So ended Molly B. The musical. Katie, her sister Katie, got up and gave a really nice ending and thanked people for coming and facilitated everyone eating. And so it ended. And, And then... You know, the crowds came. I got sort of stuck in this, on the stage talking to some folks, a lot of my bow runners and all. By the time I made it downstairs, a lot of people had left, had eaten and left, which is fine. I think everything works out the way it's supposed to. I had a wonderful time on the stage showing a couple of little kids how it all worked. And I went down and so I got some food and I sat down, had a table. And who did I sit down with unknowingly? Chaz, Gina, and Sholene, the three folks from Hanover that came down. And I remember... Shalene's job was to deliver the bad news. She was a hard person for me to, to like, you know, because she had to tell me the bad stuff. And she knew that. But the three of them just looked at me and Shalene's first words were, all I have to say is Molly should never have died. This is horrifying. And we drove down here expecting, you know, I don't know what we were expecting. I actually saw them ahead of time when they were, when they were getting seated and Chaz looked around like, what, this is a theater. What is this? I just said, you'll see. I don't know what they were expecting, but they were not expecting what they got, which was an unbelievably professionally done show in a full theater for a 13-year-old girl. And so Charlene said to me, when I die, I need you to do my funeral and I'll never go to another one again because I couldn't sit through anything else now that I've done this. So that was that. We went home and, you know, I'm one of those people, I love Christmas Eve because you have the anticipation of Christmas and Christmas night for me as a child, I loved my toys, but it was over. And there was always that Christmas night sort of let down for me. Everything was quiet. The presents were open. You know, the anticipation is as good as the gift for me. And that's how I felt. You know, we went to bed. We're lying on the floor. Gracie and I, actually, I was lying on the bed upstairs for a little while. I didn't go up there much. It's really hard for me. But all three of us were lying up there. I think it was just like, can we all just lie up here? And Eleanor too. So I actually think it was four of us. And we, we were just sort of lying on the bed like, it's over. Now what do we do? Eleanor came down and slept with us on the floor. We woke up Tuesday and I was in a panic. Like, oh no, oh no, oh no, it's done. Now what? And the coverage of her show was unbelievable. And I'll sort of wrap it up here because that this is a next logical ending. But the news coverage of the show was phenomenal. I had spoken to some people on the phone. I had talked to Roy on the phone as he drove home. What did he think? He was blown away by it. These were some of our last sort of really, truly, you know, emotionally okay interactions. As okay as you can be around a dead child. But he had really, really enjoyed the show. So I wake up Tuesday morning. And there's this unbelievable newspaper article about it written by a staff member at the monitor. A couple of days later, the next article about the show was written by a guy named Ray Duckler. And Ray Duckler and I have been friends for a long, long time. He was once a sports writer and sports editor at the monitor, and now he does features. So he came and he began his article feeling like I felt that he sat down in the theater thinking, oh, Higgins, what have you done? And he was utterly blown away, just utterly, completely blown away with the volume of people who were there and the level of the show and what the arts can do for a community. And he was a sports writer. We have a local firefighter that was badly burned in a fire recently. And the Bruins came up and did all this stuff. Well, he's a firefighter and athletes and sports and working out that, that, you know, the military, that service oriented mindset is very athletically motivated sometimes. And of course the Bruins would get together 
and support this firefighter. That's what you do when you're, when you're a part of a team. And the theater and the arts are no different. Our theater and arts community rallied around my family and supported this show. And it gave 1,300 people the chance to say goodbye to Molly in a really beautiful way. I'm sorry. <laughs> she, you know, they got to see her friends get up there in front of a full house and sing and dance and perform. And they got to hear stories. They got to laugh. They got to cry. They got to be treated to a delicious dinner. All of these things were done for Molly, but also for the people that loved Molly. And it was an unbelievable way to honor her and to say goodbye. And it wasn't lost on the community and on the media. It was on the news. It got incredible coverage. I think if you Googled Molly Banzoff, Molly Be the Musical, some of that stuff is, is, I think it's up there forever. So that's where I'll end. At that time, we had an online auction on Instagram that raised, actually that auction is what paid for the majority of Molly's funeral. Her, her dance friends did these Molly B, the music, the hashtag Hot Molly B shirts. We've had several fundraisers with these. This was the major fundraiser for the Molly B Scholarship Fund, which is now the Molly B Foundation. And one of the little pieces of joy that still exists for me is when, I, when I'm driving in the car and I see somebody walking down the street wearing a Molly B shirt. It just makes me happy. I don't want them to disappear. And so that was that. That was how we celebrated Molly. So May 1st, I come home from an amazing vacation to a sleeping Molly. May 24th, I wake up having taken her off life support, buried her, and celebrated her life in the theater. Not how I thought I would spend the 24 days of May when I left my home at the end of April to go on vacation. So how do I want to end this podcast? Well, I'll end by talking a little bit about where I am. This show of love and support for us has really been pretty much ongoing forever since Molly's death. It continues now, obviously not in the volume, but there are people that love and remember Molly. I'll go up to her grave and there's a letter from a friend. There's a balloon on her birthday. You know, there are people that will remember Molly forever. The year after Molly died, so the rest of 2016, we really, really suffered. We just lived in a fog. We sat. And I'll talk about those months next in the next podcast. And I share all this again, if it bores you or it's not something that you feel you need to listen to, then by all means, this isn't the podcast for you to listen to. But I know we don't talk about these things and that enough people know what we went through, but don't really know what it was like for us. You know, me sitting at the kitchen table, screaming at the top of my lungs, I'm not fucking ready for this. You know, as I'm looking through pictures to, to put together Molly B the musical, it was, it was a lot, but this tree is the Molly B tree. And it was made for us by, I'm actually going to stand up. And so you can see it better. It was put together by one of Molly's friends and her mother. So Every November, so it starts actually this weekend here in Concord, is the Backpatch Temple Festival of Trees. And you decorate a tree with a theme or just beautifully decorated and people buy raffle tickets and it gets raffled off. Somebody gets the ticket and they win the tree. And so we had gone to Hawaii in November and early December of 2016 because we just couldn't deal with, we just needed to get out. And a good friend of ours at the time, Lenora and her husband, John, we flew ourselves there and then we had this amazing vacation staying with them. So this is the Molly Beach and... Emelina Haggett Annie, and her mom, Stacy, made it that year. And it was a labor of love for them. And, and Stacy writes this beautiful summary of putting it together at the Bektash Temple. And this gentleman who had traveled up from out of state to just watch the trees be put together, sitting there and watching her and just feeling when it was all done that Molly must have been a really beautiful person to have such a beautiful tree. And so there are pink decorations. There are blue to sort of offset there are tap shoes and ballet slippers. There's a pink violin. And there are these beautiful handwritten wooden ornaments. You can sort of see one here, there. They're hidden a bit. And all of the ornaments have things written on them. The black ones are dances she was in and things she did. And the blue ones were how she was. And, you know, they say, friend to everyone, sweet angel, Molly be the musical, you know, Barb's track camp. Like all of the things that Molly did and all the things that she was are, are here on this tree. So we, we couldn't go. And so we were absolutely blown away by the tree and hoped upon hope that somebody we knew and loved would win it so we would have a chance to see the tree. Well, of course, a wonderful Concord Dance Academy family, Joe and Ashley, of course, I can't think of it, Stokes. His family won the tree and they gave it to us. And so after when we arrived home from Hawaii, Stacy and Emmy came over and set up the tree in our bay window, which I'm looking at across the room here in our living room. And that's where it has stayed since December of 2016. We've had to replace the white tree once because the lights die. And actually this tree, the lights have died as well. So we've strung some lights, but now it's here. Now that we've, you know, I'll get to this in the, in the podcast as well. I just thought it was appropriate to, to record this podcast 
in front of this tree because so much of what those 24 days of May were about were people just stepping up and helping us. So again, how do I want to end this podcast? Well, you never know how big a small gesture can be for somebody. And I think I've said that before. It doesn't have to be big to be the miracle in somebody's life. And that comes from Rachel, you know, Molly's dance friend that died three years after she did. Sometimes the smallest gestures are the biggest gestures. <laughs> this tree and the fact that this family made it and that I get to look at it forever. We keep it up all the time and we light it all the time because why not? <laughs> you know, it's our Molly B tree. In your day-to-day life, the little things that you do for people sometimes make the biggest differences. I had measures and amounts of joy in those horrible days. Small things. Don Revelis and her mac and cheese. I was having a really bad day once. And she said, what can I do for you? And I said, oh, I would love some mac and cheese. And it was warm on my porch like three hours later. That was just something she could do. And she was happy to do it. You know, in all of those days, people bringing food, stopping by, making sure I'm okay, checking in, offering their services, printing services, and getting ready and volunteering at the theater. And my friend Noni came up and Sarah... Noni Flanagan and Sarah both understand tragic losses. Children, Sarah lost her brother and Sarah was with Noni when Noni lost her mother and her sister. So if there are two women in my life that understand how I felt at that moment, it's them. And and they also really understand Gracie because they experience these things as children. And they're viable, vibrant, beautiful women now who are a huge piece of my support in my life without Molly. We had death week and then I guess we had a live week. following two weeks were, were just a chance to really honor Molly, put closure to the trauma around her death in terms of burying her and celebrating her life, facing the daunting task of moving along without her. Thank you for listening. Please respond and send me how you feel about it. And if you need help or support, if any of you are listening to this that have lost a child or lost a sibling or lost a spouse in a tragic way or however, and you're struggling in your grief, please reach out, comment on the Facebook page, or here on the on my website here. But the most thing for all of you, as I say all the time, is have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444 on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.